we'll give this a go. Okay, we'll give this a go here. Three, two. Well, welcome back to our next edition of What's Up America with Mike Kara. I'm indeed your host, Mike Kara, as always, probably broadcasting from Coe, Florida, USA, planet Earth. And my guest today is Seth Keibel from Baltimore, Maryland. And Seth is one of the Mid-Atlantic's premier woodwind specialists, working with some of the best bands in jazz, swing, and more. And Seth, it's a pleasure and honor that you could join me today and tell us all about your music and being a uh, premier woodwind specialist. So first of all, why don't you <laughs> tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you got uh, started in playing all these instruments? You bet. First, uh, Mike, let me thank you for having me. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, checking out some of your podcast history online, and you've had an illustrious, very diverse roster of guests. So I'm, I'm happy to be added to the list. Um, so yes, I'm a woodwind player, uh, clarinet, saxophone, and flute, uh, playing in a lot of different genres of music, uh, mostly jazz, swing, some blues, occasional classical. I also do a lot of Jewish klezmer music. Um, and uh, I live outside of Baltimore, but I grew up in the New York area and uh, started playing clarinet when I was oh, about nine years old and did the usual music lessons, school band things, and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, music growing up was uh, uh, something I enjoyed and was good at it, but I don't think it was something I loved or was great at it. I definitely wasn't a musical prodigy, and in fact, I didn't really plan on becoming a musician. Uh, but in my college years, I, I started spending less and less time in my classes and more and more time playing music. And when I uh, graduated college in ooh, 1996, I decided almost on a whim that there was nothing that gave me as much joy as playing music. So I decided to, you know, have a go at it and, and, and spend a few years being a musician. And I always told myself that when you know, I couldn't pay the bills and the rent was due or, or whatnot. I would settle down and get a quote-unquote real job or go to graduate school, something respectable like that. Well, that was, whew, that was uh, I guess, about 20, almost 25 years ago. So I've been working ever since then as a full-time professional musician. So I think that ship has sailed at this point, and I am committed to a life of music. Okay, uh, Seth, so I'm, I'm so glad you're here that you mentioned that uh, you play a clarinetted saxophone. I mean, recently, you know, I've been watching the Lawrence Welk show, and there's a guy named, uh, yeah. named Henry Cuesta, and we were always so impressed that he was able to go back and forth from the saxophone to the clarinet, and we said, that's so amazing. So as somebody that actually does that, can you give us some insight into, is that difficult, easier? Well, you know, the, all three instruments that I focus on, the clarinet, saxophone, and flute, are musical cousins. If you know one, you don't automatically know the other, but you've got a head start. There are enough similarities that if you already play clarinet or already, you know, play saxophone, it's going to be easier to learn the other than it would be to, like, learn trombone or, or you know, violin, something completely different. Um, the analogy I sometimes like to use is the romance languages. You know, if you become fluent in Spanish, you don't automatically know how to speak Italian, but it's going to be a lot easier for you to learn Italian 
than it would be to learn, you know, Mandarin or, or something or Russian or something like that. So, you know, if you if you know any of those woodwind instruments, you don't automatically know the others, but you've got a big head start if you want to learn it. So it's not unusual for uh, woodwind players to double, as they say, on those other instruments. I mean, a lot of the, all the famous clarinetists of jazz, for example, people like Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Woody Herman, they all doubled on saxophone at some point in their career, even though that's not what they're necessarily famous for. Um, now, of course, I'm a big fan of, of the guy who played with Lawrence Welk for a little while, uh, Pete Fountain. Right, yeah. Yep, he did. A, he did. A, what, was he, he was with Lawrence Welk for a couple of years, I think. Yeah, he was. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that, that's, that's great, uh, Seth. So I wanted to talk a little bit now about the saxophone. Of course, we see Kenny G where he has that straightened out saxophone. So that <laughs> is the soprano saxophone? That is correct. That's the soprano saxophone, the straight saxophone that Kenny G plays, and actually was also played by another one of my musical heroes, the great Creole uh, musician Sidney Bechet. Oh, so yeah. So Nelly, I was just going to say then, as far as you know, being a saxophone player, we mentioned that there's yeah. Alto, tenor, bass, baritone. So I mean, as a as a sax player, then do you play all of those, or just some of those? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I actually do, and I have, you know, I have a soprano, I have an alto, I have a tenor, I have a baritone sax, and if you know one sax, you pretty much can play them all. I mean, there are some slight variations, but they're almost identical. Now, I definitely specialize in tenor saxophone. That's the one I play most often. Uh, that's kind of my preference. It's also the nicest saxophone I own. Uh, but I do occasionally, when called upon do so, to do so, will pull out uh, one of those other saxophones, the soprano alto or the big, fat baritone saxophone. And when playing the, all those saxophones, is there a certain one, like if you're doing like a, a, a saxophone solo, I mean, can you do a, a solo on a baritone sax or...? <laughs> you can. It can be a, a little challenging, cause especially because the baritone sax, the big one, takes a lot of air. Right. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, you can do it. And, and there are sax players who kind of specialize in some of those saxophones, like the baritone saxophone. I generally don't. Like I say, mo most of the time, especially when I'm a soloist, I play the tenor saxophone. But occasionally I'll get a call to play in a big band or do a studio session on one of the other saxophones, and then I do my best to oblige. Oh, so so we were also mentioning, uh, Seth, that you play the uh, flute. So, I mean, is that there are certain, like, genres of music that the flute's more prevalent in, or...? I mean, flute, flute can be used in almost any genre of music. As I like to say, uh, flute is literally one of the oldest musical instruments in existence. They have literally found like cavemen bones that were hollowed out and turned into flutes. Um, so, I mean, I, I enjoy playing flute in jazz a lot, especially like for Latin music, like in bossa novas and sambas and things like that. But you can use flute in pretty much any genre of music. In fact, sometimes I like to, you know, surprise people by playing a flute solo in a blues band or in a rock band or a country band or something, uh, which is certainly not unprecedented, but a little more unusual. 
Right. And so, Seth, I wanted to talk about, you know, pl you know, as a you know player that you do, a, I'm sure a lot of music rely on a lot of sheet music, but I mean, do you also do improv? Do you do jam sessions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, growing up, I learned to read music and I certainly do read a lot of music these days, and I consider myself a fairly musically literate person and fluent music reader. Uh, but I've also really done a lot of improvisation. I mean, you know, in a lot of types of jazz, uh, as you well know, uh, improvisation is the whole raison d'etre, the whole point of it. You know, the individual solos and the melody is oftentimes practically just an excuse to uh, get to the individual solos. So I do a lot of improvisation as well. I kind of got a backdoor into improvisation. When I was a kid, I would just put on the radio and kind of noodle along on my instruments with whatever was playing on the radio. And I didn't quite realize it at the time, but I was teaching myself to improvise. Wow. Well, so, so uh, Seth, you know, so we are talking about, you know, the clarinet, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. how how is that re close? Is that related to something like the oboe or uh, bassoon, or are those instruments you've ever tried to play? You know, those are a little less similar. The main difference is oboe and bassoon. Well, let me put it this way: a uh, clarinet and saxophone are what's called single reed instruments. Right. Meaning you have a single thin piece of wood called the reed, which is attached to the mouthpiece. And when you blow on the mouthpiece and read simultaneously, the reed vibrates really fast, making a buzzing sound. That's how the sound is generated. It's not unlike, you know, I don't know if you if you ever as a kid, you know, used to pick up a piece of grass and put it between your fingers. Yeah, and yeah. if you hold it tightly between your fingers, make a buzzing sound. Same exact principle. Now that's how the clarinet and saxophone work. But the bassoon and oboe are what's called double reed instruments, meaning rather than having a mouthpiece, you have two reeds, two uh, thin pieces of wood that are affixed back to back, and they buzz against each other, um, which requires a fairly different uh, embouchure. Embouchure is the fancy schmancy French word for the shape of your mouth on the instrument. So, uh, oboe and bassoon, because they're double reed instruments, are, are played fairly differently. There are still some similarities, but they're less closely related to the clarinet and saxophone. Now, I did, once upon a time, uh, try to play some oboe, and I spent a few years wrestling with the oboe, but I never really got much past the wounded duck phase uh, of playing oboe, so I eventually uh, gave it up. <laughs> Okay, Seth, so I want to talk about these nice songs you sent, and you can tell us a little bit about, about them. And so first of all, we sure. have here is Unfriend, is that right? Can you tell us about this song? Unfriend, yeah. This is, you know, I did an album, it's kind of outdated now. Uh, I did an album a few years ago uh, of songs, original songs, that had a basically commentary on the times we live in. They were called Songs of Snark and Despair. Uh, but Unfriend is probably the less uh, um, specific, the least specific song on the album. It's probably the song on the album that's still the most relevant today. It's a, a tongue-in-cheek song about uh, the best policy for social media which is, you know, rather than get into fights with people on social media, if you just can't get along, you have to hit that unfriend button. 
Okay, and the next song we have here is New Waltz. Can you tell us about this one? Mm, yeah, New Waltz is uh, an instrumental composition that I wrote a number of years ago, and I recorded it on my 2015 album, No Words. And um, this song, like I said, it's an original composition. It's a waltz, obviously. And it kind of combines some of the different types of music that I play. There's definitely a strong influence from klezmer music. Now, klezmer is Eastern European Jewish folk music, uh, which is one of my more more unique musical specialties. Uh, but New Waltz also has a little bit of a classical influence as well. And, uh, you know, I wrote this song, and I gave it kind of a placeholder title. I didn't have a title for it, so I just put New Waltz at the top of the page with the thought that at some point I would come up with a better title for it. Uh, well, I didn't, and since the song is, has done fairly well under that title, I've kept it. And it's actually, you know, this song has won a bunch of awards. It was the gold prize winner in the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest a few years ago, uh, and it's been used in a few different, uh, like, commercials and documentaries and things online, so it's it's the closest I've come to a hit record, although uh, that's a pretty low bar uh, at this point. But uh, anyway, it's, it's, it, the song has served me well. Okay, and another song we have here, and see if I can pronounce this new... Freilach? <laughs> Close. Freilach. Freilach. Yes, and New Freilach is a more traditional style klezmer piece. Uh, now, it's an original tune I wrote, but it's written in the traditional klezmer style. And, and let me give you the brief primer. Uh, I'll get, in, get into a little more detail on what klezmer music is. Um, klezmer music, as I mentioned, is, is the uh, Eastern European Jewish folk music party music, the kind of music that would be played at a wedding or other type of village celebration in the old country. Uh, but it's also what happened to this music when over two and a half million uh, Jewish immigrants came to this country, the United States, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and those old world sounds began to mix with the sounds uh, of the new world, early jazz, Dixieland, Tin Pan Alley. So the result is really a uniquely American form of music that's reflective of the Jewish immigrant experience in the melting pot of New York. And it combines a whole bunch of things. You've got the Middle Eastern sounds, uh, you know, of Arabic music and whatnot that came from the Middle East. And then you have non-Jewish Eastern European type of music. I mean, stuff like that's not that different than polka. Uh, music. And then you've got that little tinge of jazz improvisation from the American influence. These days, uh, klezmer music is the kind of music that, that, that people hear at a Jewish wedding or bar bat mitzvah, you know, where they put the kid in the chair and, you know, try not to hit his head in the ceiling fan and carry him around. So anyway, this song, New Freilach, is an original composition, but it's written in that traditional uh, klezmer style. Okay, so those yeah, those are uh, some some great songs there. So Seth, I wanted to ask Thank you, you, sure you you were talking about the the writing process. So how does one begin writing? All I mean, do you have to write for every instrument, or how does that work? Well, it depends on the type of music, but a lot of uh, the type of music I wrote, whether it's right, whether it's jazz or klezmer or whatnot. 
Uh, I tend to write more in, in what you might call lead sheet or fake chart style, where I'll write a melody, and then I'll come up with the harmony, the chord progression, and maybe a few directions for the musicians. But, you know, oftentimes, a lot of the musicians I work with, uh, if I give them an outline and a harmonic structure, what they come up with to play will be a lot better than what I would come up with. You know, I'm not going to tell the drummer exactly what to play on the drum set. I'm not going to tell the bass player exactly what to play on the bass. I may give them a few guidelines, uh, but the, the musicians I tend to work with, I, I trust so much uh, that I know uh, nine times out of ten, what they come up with is going to be a lot better than what I would come up with. So uh, I, I come up with the framework, the pieces, the melody, the harmony, uh, but they fill in the gaps, so to speak. Oh, but I mean, do you have specific, you know, requirements like for saxophone and the parts that you you play? You specifically write for then, or? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I will, and I will, you know, score things out and with musical notation and come up with a lot of directives. But a, a lot of the music I'm dealing with, like I said, the jazz and the blues and the klezmer, it's not really like classical music in the sense that every single thing every musician does is written out on the page, you know? There's a certain amount of uh, interpretation uh, with each individual musician. So they're given some, some guidelines, they're given some structure, but they can, they can connect the dots themselves. And Seth, you had mentioned uh, about polka. I mean, do you do a, a, a lot of polka music or play in any polka bands or anything? Yeah, or? Uh, you know, I have. I mean, polka is a, is a cousin of klezmer music. So I've gotten to, to do a fair amount of polka music. I'm not an expert at it, but I love playing it. In fact, I've played a fair amount of polka music with one of your previous guests. Uh, I saw you had... Uh, you had Mike Surratt on your show. Yeah, I did. Of uh, the Continentals. I've worked with him a lot. He's a great guy. In fact, I've learned a lot about polka music from him. Um, I've also done a fair amount of, like, German umpa music, you know, uh, um, uh, that kind of stuff. It's all, they're all musical cousins. You know, all these genres, klezmer, polka, uh, the German umpa stuff, they've all got some common ancestry, so it's not that big a leap musically to go from one to the other. And of course, clarinet is, is, a, is a pretty, pretty well-featured polka instrument. So I, I love doing things. I love playing the clarinet polka and songs like that. That's a lot of fun. Oh, great. Uh, so, so, I mean, do you do, you're talking about different genres. I mean, do you do, I mean, well, first of all, some of those, well, I know saxophone is prevalent in rock uh, music, but I mean, is, mm -hmm. is there, you know, a need for uh, clar clarinet or flute in rock music or? Well, it's not as common. Uh, certainly when I do kind of blues gigs and rock and roll gigs and whatnot, I probably spend a lot of my time on saxophone. Uh, but then occasionally, like I said, I love to kind of play with the conventions and surprise people a bit by picking up one of the other instruments. You know, one of my main kind of rock and roll blues gigs is I've played for many years with a great um, boogie woogie piano player in the Washington, D.C. area named Daryl Davis. Uh, he's, he's worked with a gazillion people. His, his probably his biggest claim to fame is he was uh, Chuck Berry's primary pianist for the last decade or so of Chuck Berry's life. Um, 
But so when I play with him, we do a lot of classic 50s rock and roll, a lot of blues, a lot of boogie woogie. And I'm probably playing saxophone, you know, 75, 80% of the time with him. But every once in a while, maybe once a set or once a night, I love to do a, a solo or two on flute or clarinet. And like I said, it kind of changes things up a bit from the audience and gets a few oohs and ahs and keeps things interesting. Oh, so I mean, with, uh, you know, when you do like a saxophone solo, is there necessarily a, a set, you know, mu music for it? Or I mean, do you do different so solos, uh, for you know, for the same song? Or Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the types of music I play, like jazz and blues and whatnot, there is a premium placed on improvisation. Meaning when you solo on a song, you follow the structure of the song, you, you know, play things that fit with the chords, with the harmonies, but you don't play things exactly the same way every night. And, uh, you know, if you hear me play uh, a solo on a, on a song, on a jazz tune or a blues tune or whatever, night after night after night, uh, I'm going to take a completely different solo every night. In fact, it would probably be harder for me to do the same solo every night. That would be, that would be kind of a real challenge. Um, so, you know, like, like any good jazz musician, I do a, a lot of improvisation in what I do. So, I mean, for you, Seth, when you record, let's say you, you know, you re record a song, you, you, you do a, a solo. I mean, then maybe when you play the song, it would be a different solo then, or? Yeah. You know, that's usually the way it works in jazz. I mean, uh, you know, this is, and this is something that jazz musicians have wrestled throughout history because their their instinct is to play new solos every time, to always make every performance unique and different. But you know, for jazz musicians who have been fortunate enough to have hit recordings, like for example, the great Louis Armstrong, um, he you know he always wanted to make his audience happy. So if he had a hit record, he would actually have to go back to the record. And, and spend hours and hours learning whatever solo he improvised in that moment on the record so that he could recreate it uh, for his audience. Uh, now, of course, I don't have any really famous hit records like that, so I don't have to worry about that. So uh, I try to create new and interesting improvised solos whenever I can. Okay, Seth. So I want to talk, you know, a little bit about, you know, your, uh, you know, social media and your website. So first of all, do you have a website? Uh, yes. Yeah, my website is SethKeibel.com. S-E-T-H-K-I-B-E-L. One of the nice things about having a, a slightly unusual name is that that domain name wasn't taken. I'm very easy to find online. Oh, and then you're on Facebook and uh, Twitter and all that. I'm on the TwitFace and the UChat and the, all those various social media sites. And again, one of the nice things about having an unusual name is if you type me in pretty much anywhere on the Internet, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere, you're going to find me pretty easily. Great. So, Seth, I have to ask, so these past few months, how's been getting gigs? I mean, have you had a lot of opportunity to perform live or...? Not really. It's been, it's been tough, of course. Um, part of the issue is, you know, I do have a a severely immunocompromised member of my household. Right. So uh, I've, by necessity, had to be on a pretty strict lockdown. So I've done some streaming events, you know, some live streaming from my house and various 
streaming functions, both public streaming gigs and some private ones. I've also, you know, kind of filled the gap by doing a fair amount of teaching, both private music lessons and I do a lot of uh, music lectures on music history for various senior groups and other lifelong learning groups. So it's not as fun as playing music live. I can't wait till I can get back in front of audiences again, but it's kind of helped to keep me busy uh, during this interim period. So, Seth, you know, when you, I don't know if you actually play together in a group, but what is, is it like a Zoom call and you're all playing at once, sir? Yeah, I mean, you can't really play with other musicians easily remotely, uh, but I do some stuff solo. And then I also, uh, quite fortunately, my son, who's 16, has become quite a proficient pianist. So I have drafted him into accompanying me uh, for some various streaming gigs. Uh, we've done a bunch of streaming concerts and, you know, done some streaming benefit shows and a few other types of things like that. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have an in-house accompanist who I'm quarantined with who uh, really has no choice uh, but to accompany me when I, when I ask him. And Seth, speaking of accompaniment, so when you do some of these recordings, are you like layering flute and saxophone and, and all that, and clarinet together? Or? You know, sometimes. I definitely have done that on some recordings, but on a lot of my albums, I kind of think to myself in the studio, you know, will I be able to play this live in front of an audience? So uh, although I, do, I have done that on some recordings, a lot of times I like to try to just stick to one instrument at a time so that it's easier to recreate uh, the recording in a live setting. Great. Uh, so, I mean, as far as uh, th this year, do you think that there'll be any opportunities to perform live? Or I, I hope so. I certainly think so. And, and you know, already, you know, uh, I, I'm here in, in Baltimore, as you said, so it's pretty wintry here right now. But when the weather gets warmer, I think there'll be more outdoor performing opportunities. Uh, I'm already starting to book some this spring and summer, and then hopefully by, you know, the fall, as, as everyone gets vaccinated, things can start to return to some level of normalcy. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I'll get to make some more music with, with some of my friends and, and fellow musicians uh, before too long. And Seth, I know you do a variety of, of, of venues, but I'm wondering if, if you've done any of these you know, craft breweries yet. Oh yeah, I love I love doing things like there are a lot of wineries too in this area in Maryland, right? And uh, so I've played a lot of winery gigs and some of these craft breweries, like you said, and that's always always a lot of fun uh, to play in these types of environments. And it's also nice to see a a new type of venue crop up, especially when so many venues are disappearing. It's nice that at least there's some some new venues popping up as well. So yeah, I'm a big fan of big fan of those types of places. So, uh, Seth, I wanted to ask you, so around, you know, uh, we're not too uh, removed from the holidays, but I don't think this year, but normally, I mean, do you get a lot of Christmas gigs or are required to play Christmas music? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's funny, in a normal holiday season, obviously this holiday season wasn't normal, but in a normal holiday season... Uh, I am ridiculously busy because I do a lot of Christmas gigs where I'm playing Christmas music, but then I also do a lot of Hanukkah gigs uh, because Jewish music is one of my specialties. So I'm kind of 
you know, double dipping as far as the holidays are concerned. And, uh, you know, I'll one day do a Christmas gig, next day do a Hanukkah gig, and so forth and so on. So in a normal holiday season, I am very busy. Uh, hopefully, uh, this year's holiday season will be more like that. Oh, and as far as uh, performing, Seth, have you had a, a opportunity to travel to a lot of different places or around the world? Yeah, or? I have. I mean, not as much. I, I always love to do more, but I have gotten a chance to do some touring, both nationally and internationally. Uh, for example, I, I mentioned earlier how I've played a lot with uh, Daryl Davis, the boogie woogie pianist, and and I did. Uh, I guess four tours of the United Kingdom uh, with him some years ago, and that was just loads of fun. Um, my Klezmer band did a tour of Chile uh, in South America a few years ago on behalf of the State Department. So I'd certainly love to do more traveling, uh, especially now that my kids are getting older <laughs> and don't need me around quite as much. They're both teenagers now. Uh, I hope that once things get back to normal, uh, I can do more and more uh, traveling and go to different places, uh, both nationally and internationally, because I love doing that. I really enjoy uh, traveling and, and meeting different people in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Oh, so, so maybe uh, someday you'd like to come here to Orlando, Florida, huh? Oh, yes, yes. It's been, it's been a number of years since I've been down there, and it's, it's loads of fun, obviously. Uh, in the Orlando area, and a lot of great places to play in Florida. So, yep. Great. Uh, so, uh, before we go here, uh, Seth, so if people would like to purchase more of your, your your music, I mean, you have a certain amount of albums, and they're available on your website? Yep, or? yep they're available on the website, SethKeibel.com, but they're also on Amazon and most other music retailers. And most of them are available digitally if you prefer music that way. They're on Spotify. They're on Apple Music. And again, one of the nice things about having a more unusual name is you go to any of these sites and type in Seth Keibel, you're going to find me pretty darn easily. It's not that hard to track me down. Oh, great. And uh, so are you writing any new new music currently? or? You know, I've been writing some. Honestly, I've I've found uh, you would think uh, the pandemic would 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 induce a lot of creativity, but I've found that it, uh, <laughs> I haven't been as creative as I would have liked during the pandemic. But uh, I'm hoping once I start getting out and playing with real musicians again, that'll be more inspiring. So yeah, speaking of that, uh, Seth, when you you know when you do uh, play, you know, with musicians, I mean, is there certain other instruments like other woodwinds that you get together? You 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 discuss, you know, you know your strategy or anything like that, or is it more just in individuals or? Oh well, I mean, certainly, you know, it's it's not that common to find like two clarinetists on the same gig. Although when when it does happen, it's a load load of fun. But we certainly, uh, you know, like every instrument, you have your communities online and you share secrets and tips and jokes and insights and stuff. So there is a a a nice brotherhood and sisterhood of woodwind players out there that I am proud to be a part of. Okay, uh, Seth, we really appreciate uh, your your time. And any final thoughts or anything else you'd like to mention here? 
No, I just want to, you know, once again, thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, doing uh, such a great job to elevate independent musicians. Uh, you know, again, I was looking through the list of people you had on. You've had all these great independent musicians in a whole variety of genres from all over the country. And, you know, for those of us who play styles of music that are out of the mainstream, so to speak, you know, not pop music, not stuff that's heard on Top 40 Radio, it, it can be so hard to get attention, and it's great that you're really doing so much to elevate uh, these styles of music and these independent musicians all over the country. So thank you, Mike. Sure, definitely my pleasure. Okay, uh, and if you could give your what website, though we know it's, uh, it's your, just your name, but if you could give your website one final time, please. Sure, it's SethKeibel.com, S-E-T-H-K-I-B-E-L.com. Okay, my guest has been Seth Keibel, and you've been listening to What's Up America with Mike Kara, and please catch us again next time. Okay, that's so 